KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. Lots to talk about in the Inflation Reduction Act, the legislation which was passed by Democrats without a single Republican vote in the House or Senate. It deals with climate change. It deals with health care, taxes and more. And we wanted to get an overview of what the law does and does not have. So we caught up with Dr. Scott Deakle, associate professor and chair of the Department of Business and Economics at Ursinus College. So before we dig into this bill, this passed the Senate through something called reconciliation can you tell me this? what this reconciliation is about? Sure. So as some folks might be aware, the Senate doesn't normally act on majority rule. It acts on what you might call supermajority rule. There are rules that are not in the Constitution, but have been in place in the Senate for more than a century that say that for most pieces of legislation, there needs to be the support of at least 60 out of the 100 senators in order for the legislation to proceed. And there are some exceptions, though, covered by this process called reconciliation that primarily apply to spending items. So with this and several other bills that we've heard about over the last year or so, with a very evenly split Senate, The Democrats have resorted to using this reconciliation process in order to get some of these big spending proposals uh, passed and going through the Senate. So that's what they did with uh, this particular bill. Uh, They had uh, 50 votes plus the tie-breaking vice presidential vote from Kamala Harris. They managed to get the legislation passed by treating it as part of a reconciliation process. And it is called the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, me personally, I think they only called this because they needed something that would catch headlines and make people think about it in the moment that we are enjoying. And also it would have been kind of tacky to call it the Joe Manchin is an American hero act, which, um, you know, because they wanted, it was Joe Manchin that was carrying this across the finish line. Uh, and I don't mean to there, it seems to me from what I have read, there will be things that would address inflation, but This is if everything goes right down the road, very negligible effect in the moment. Am I being correct here? Yeah, that that's my take. And that's the take of several other economists who've put together models that uh, forecast what the effect on inflation of this would be. I mean, as you know, this would do things like limit the uh, amount folks who use Obamacare to purchase their insurance. Uh, for health have to pay. So I guess in that sense, it keeps those prices low and it will uh, make Medicaid able to negotiate prescription drug prices, which would keep those prices low. But those things are going to take months, years to be in effect. And other elements of this uh, bill could easily drive prices up for some things. Uh, subsidies go to a lot of uh, things in here, particularly electric vehicles, and uh, things that get subsidies tend to see their prices increase. So, you know, in that respect, uh, I think the forces in this bill that tend to increase inflation and those that tend to decrease it uh, are going to offset each other. And and another thing to keep in mind is really ultimately long run, we economists like to say that inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon. The 
the issue we really have in the economy right now is that there's too much money uh, chasing too few goods. And until the money supply becomes more balanced with the amount of goods and services that are out there, we're still going to have some inflation issues. So I, I wouldn't count on this to have too, too big or too, too soon of an impact on the prices we're seeing these days. And as we dig into this, it's interesting because Joe Biden had a very ambitious agenda that was titled Build Back Better. They couldn't get that across the finish line. Then they worked to get something smaller. It looked like that was not going to get across the finish line. Uh, then this kind of came out of nowhere a few weeks ago. So it has almost a feel of found money. And there's a lot of good stuff in here, but this is a fraction of what the Democrats started to pursue. Right. Yeah. So, you know, this is kind of like a reduced form of Build Back Better, like you said. And if if you think back, you know, to the spring, there was this massive bill that was going to raise the top marginal tax rate on personal income and uh, raise some money in some other ways. And it was going to fund a whole host of programs, social and environmental. And what we're coming out with now in this Inflation Reduction Act is largely an environmental-oriented program. So all of those things we were hearing about becoming possible, free community college, uh, child care subsidies that would mean no one would have to pay more than 7% of their income for child care. Those things are, are off the table. And uh, given the election calendar and what's likely to happen with the elections, uh, I don't expect to see those now for a few more years. But what this does do is it uh, has a lot of spending and a lot of policy implications for what happens with uh, basically how we generate and use energy in the United States. And a big part of it is trying to limit, limit carbon dioxide emissions. And it's trying to limit those emissions coming out of our automobiles and coming out of our electric power plants. So uh, it's it's going to mean uh, a lot of a lot of new programs and uh, efforts to try to reduce that carbon footprint and uh, hopefully reduce the pace of global warming that we're seeing now. Yeah, and that's big. And like we said, this is a fraction of what the Democrats started with, but that is not to, I think, minimize that this is this is important stuff in here. And let's kind of you know start with the environment. This is really kind of a full-throated push forward to kind of change the way, you know, American society, you know, garners and uses a lot of energy, no? Yeah. Yeah. So the one I think probably is the at the front of most folks' minds is electric vehicles. Uh, we're hearing things like by 2030, we're going to be uh, half electric vehicles. And how is that going to happen? A lot of folks may already know that there are tax credits out there for electric vehicles, but a lot of folks probably also realize that those seem to accrue mostly to very well-off people. Most electric vehicles cost upwards of seventy or eighty thousand dollars, and if you get like a five or six thousand dollar tax credit for buying one, that that still doesn't really put it within range for you and me. So this bill has rearranged the tax credits so that. They will apply to more affordable electric cars and even used electric cars. And the hope is that this is going to put electric vehicles more in the grasp, uh, more in the range of the middle class and lead to more widespread adoption. 
So it, it does that. And it also is providing uh, additional subsidies and support for renewable power, such as solar and wind, and also for nuclear power, which, though it's not renewable, does not generate carbon dioxide emissions. And also, we're talking kind of specifically electric, kind of the infrastructure. It works to get more charging stations and just kind of make life just make it much more likely that there are fewer and fewer hurdles to people wanting to get an electric vehicle. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's great to give people tax credits to buy electric vehicles with, but just the tax credits alone won't necessarily make you or I want to buy an electric vehicle. Uh, as you mentioned, there are far fewer electric charging stations than there are gas stations. So, you know, most people are reluctant to plan a road trip in their electric vehicle because uh, there's a good chance they'll be stuck somewhere. So there, there's support in here for uh, increasing the number of charging stations and also making them fast charging stations. So maybe you only wait 15 or 20 minutes. There's also just from the power generation end, some support in this bill and also the infrastructure bill that passed last fall that should uh, address the problem that solar and wind power uh, generation is often located in places far away from where it's actually used. Right now, America has a power transmission system that's set up for power plants that deliver power 24-7, uh, relatively close to the places that it's consumed. But the uh, power that comes from windmills, that comes from solar farms, is going to be uh, more located in remote rural areas, places to get a lot of sunshine like the desert, places to get a lot of wind like the Great Plains. And there's got to be new transmission wiring that's uh, built uh, in a way that can take it to uh, a lot of new places. So it supports that financially. But even with the financial support, there's still going to be hurdles. And I think an important thing for folks to keep an eye on is what happens with what the people in shorthand call the permitting process. In order to build transmission lines, you have to acquire land. Sometimes you have to do it by uh, eminent domain. Uh, you have to get through some environmental regulations. You know, you have to show that you're going to have minimal impact. And you might even be going over, you know, lands that are considered uh, sacred to Native American tribes or have other uh, special features to people. So, uh, a lot of folks are aware of this, and there is uh, reportedly uh, a deal to um, include legislation in September that will be tagged on to uh, some budget legislation that will have to pass. And uh, when we pass that must-pass budget legislation, uh, we'll also relax a lot of the permitting rules. And we'll also give the president authority to fast-track uh, some important projects. And so that's um, that. That creates, uh, I think, a bit of a rock and a hard place uh, for for some folks. Um, there, there's kind of this distinction out there between things that are good for the global environment and things that are good for the local environment. And this decarbonization is obviously good for the global environment, but well, building. Uh, transmission lines through new places be good for those local environments. You know, how much opposition will that create and how much discomfort will that create? You know, on another level, uh, we're going to see the same thing with uh, mining 
and extraction of materials that support uh, renewable energy and battery storage. So you need things like nickel, you need things like lithium, cobalt, uh, all of these obscure elements that you might have last read about in 10th grade chemistry. <laughs> um, we, we need to create mines essentially for them in America. Uh, there, there's not much extraction of those things in America, but they're uh, vital for uh, electric vehicles and battery storage of electric power. And we have to find a way to get more of them to the market so we can uh, put some of these decarbonization programs into effect. We need to take a break. We will continue our conversation about the Inflation Reduction Act with Dr. Scott Deakle of Ursinus College right after this. This is KYW News Radio In-Depth. And we are back on KYW News Radio In-Depth, continuing our conversation with Scott Deakle. In addition to climate change, the environment, uh, there's a big healthcare part of this. And it looks to me like it's kind of on two fronts. There's Affordable Care Act slash Obamacare subsidies, which, as I've read it, kind of prevents disaster. Like if these weren't extended, you would have just seen a lot of people's premiums go through the roof. There's not necessarily anything new there, but it just maintains what what we've had. But also there's a lot of important stuff with allowing Medicare to negotiate some drug prices, putting some caps on some things. Uh, once again, these these are tangible things that people will feel. Yeah. Um, to the point about the Obamacare subsidies, if this legislation had not passed, we would have been on track uh, this fall to have in the Obamacare marketplaces on these Obamacare exchanges, as they're known, uh, we would have had premiums for health insurance for low to low middle income customers go up about $700 a year, according to an estimate from the Kaiser Foundation. And so that would have been a, a big hit for a lot of those customers. And it's estimated about 13 million people would have experienced uh, that that type of hit. And uh, from the Medicare perspective, it means the uh, very large proportion of our population, <laughs> all of which is 65 years or older, that gets uh, insurance coverage and prescription drug coverage from Medicare is going to likely see uh, their prescription drug prices at least slow down in their increases. And there's a good chance a lot of things are going to get cheaper. Uh, interestingly, you know, before this legislation passed, uh, Medicare just had to accept the the price that was the market price for pharmaceuticals, even though it's probably the largest purchaser of prescription drugs in America, who knows, maybe even the world. And so you would think that that would give it some leverage to say, well, we're a big bulk purchaser, maybe you could give us a discount, but it had uh, never passed. So that's going to change things a lot in that marketplace and presumably keep prices down uh, over uh, a long period for senior citizens buying their drugs. A, a lot of folks uh, are warning that by reducing profits for pharmaceutical companies, it's going to disincentivize research on new pharmaceuticals. So that'll be something to track as, as the years go on. Um, will insurance companies, or excuse me, will pharmaceutical companies uh, be a little less likely to uh, go into new uh, treatments and new uh, drugs because uh, they think there's going to be a smaller return because Medicare won't pay as much for these drugs. So that's a valid concern and something that uh, we'll have to watch over the coming years. 
I've heard overall a, a lot of talk about this, the Inflation Reduction Act uh, reducing the deficit. What have you seen on that front? Would that be significant? And it, the deficit is one of those things that I feel like people only care about uh, in election years, and it's only a very, very niche group that really doesn't care about it, but they just care about it because they can hit the other side with it. Uh, but what does this do for the deficit? Yeah, well, uh, I'll start off talking about the size of the deficit, which uh, in the past year was roughly $2.7 trillion with a T dollars. And the Congressional Budget Office, which is our kind of nonpartisan scorekeeper on these things, uh, pulled together an estimate. I got to say they pulled it together very quickly, but uh, their estimate is that over a period of 10 years, not one year, 10 years, over a period of 10 years, this legislation should reduce the deficit by 300 billion with a B dollars. So you, you divide that up evenly, that's $30 billion a year, compare that to $2.7 trillion. It's an impact, but uh, it uh, is more like a rounding error. Uh, there's also money specifically for the IRS, and this is a talking point that's been weaponized already. The IRS has been starved for funding for years. And this will help them finally, it seems, get up to date technology wise and frankly enforce a lot of tax laws that are already on the books, but there's just not the manpower to do it, right? Yeah. I mean, it's pretty impressive. That same Congressional Budget Office uh, estimate uh, about the deficit reduction uh, says that they expect the increased enforcement from the IRS to generate $124 billion in tax revenue over the next 10 years. So, uh, what that tells you is like the IRS is so outdated and, uh, you know, the technology is so far behind that it's missing out on something like twelve and a half billion dollars a year in tax collections. And my my guess is that um, a lot of that is not terribly intrusive stuff that's going to affect people like you and me. Um, but it, it probably is likely that more people will get audited. Um, audits are no fun, and um, they do take a lot of work. And there probably will be a few cases where the IRS doesn't treat uh, the American taxpayer as uh, well as they deserve. But I, I think on the whole, we're going to see that a lot of this increased enforcement probably catches things that uh, we're glad they're catching. What are some other things this law does on the tax front. There's a 15% corporate minimum. Uh, mo and when we talk higher taxes, for the most part, if we're painting with a broad brush, this is all people, high-end corporations. This is not stuff aimed at, at you and me. Could there be residual things because of what a corporation has to do to pay this tax? Yes. But you know, when we sit down and do our taxes, we're not going to get hit higher uh, because of this law. Am I correct? Yeah, that, that's basically right, unless you are actually like the sole owner of a corporation, you won't see this on your individual tax return. They're setting a 15% minimum corporate tax rate. I'll be interested to see if there still remain some loopholes on that for corporations to find. They're very good at finding ways around things. So um, it remains to be seen how well that, that plays out. But again, the CBO is estimating that's going to generate... $222 billion in tax revenue. So it's it's one of the biggest sources of revenue from this bill. 
And what it means is that uh, a lot of very large companies, the Amazons of the world, uh, the General Motors and so on, uh, to the extent they found ways to deduct their taxes or deduct expenses from their taxes, uh, they're going to have to limit some of that and pay a certain minimum amount in corporate income tax. Um, as an economist, I, I do acknowledge uh, and recognize as valid the argument, though, that some of those taxes, though they don't show up on our income tax forms, are going to eventually find their way to individuals like you and me. So how could that happen? Uh, it could mean that uh, a company's net income after taxes is lower. And net income is a consideration when companies decide, are they going to expand? Are they going to contract? And it makes them less likely to expand and more, more likely to contract their operations. How does that trickle down to us? Less employment. So it, it will have a, a small but subtle effect on employment, probably similar to the, the subtle effect you'll, you'll see over time on the budget deficit. Um, you know, there, there's going to be some cases, some what we would call marginal projects in economics that don't happen because they don't do enough for the bottom line if the taxes are going to be a little bit higher when the profits from them. I, you're right, and I, I agree with your point, but it, I think it also needs to be said that when the taxes are lower, a lot of these places still don't invest in their people. They just buy back stock and and give higher bonuses. So they, they kind of want it both ways, obviously. Yeah, and, and an interesting thing about this particular bill is that uh, there's now going to be a 1% tax on stock buybacks specifically, which is something that hasn't happened before. And how big is that? Kind of, it could, I don't want to say game changer, but th that's going to have an impact, no? The, the estimate on that is it will generate $74 billion over 10 years. So it's about a third of the impact of the higher corporate income tax. Um, those estimates are tricky to make because it, it may just drive companies more towards uh, paying back, uh, paying out in dividends rather than buybacks, or it might have uh, the effect that's good for people like us, where uh, instead of returning the money to shareholders, uh, the corporations invest them in new projects that generate employment and higher salaries. So uh, it, it could have that uh, nice unintended effect too. I, I would be remiss if I didn't note that the carried interest tax did not change again. Once again, it's something that folks have noticed for 15 years or so that if, if you happen to be in this uh, very lucrative occupation of being a private equity manager, um, you are able to get a more favorable tax treatment for some of your income. And uh, just in a thumbnail, uh, how this works is that if you're a private equity manager, you, you raise money from other sources. You, you essentially get loans from other sources. Take those loans, you buy other companies, maybe you buy them for $100 million, and 10 years from now, you make the company worth $200 million and sell it, and there's $100 million bucks, and your fee to your, your lender is $20 million of that, 20%. So, you know, that year you made 20 million bucks. How do we tax that 20 million bucks? We tax that 20 million bucks as if it was a capital gain, as if it was an investment return rather than salary. And what that means is that it gets taxed at a lower rate because we want to encourage investment. 
but you tell me, Matt, was that private equity manager an actual investor in that project? Well, it is nice to see the hedge funds <laughs> finally get a break. So to be fair, and yeah. this was this was famously, this was kind of uh, Senator Kirsten Sinema out of Arizona, who was the last hurdle for the Democrats to get their caucus in order. This is something yeah. she didn't want. And Scott, you know, as well as I do, you can't talk to someone with Arizona, that from Arizona without them talking about how important carried mm-hmm. interest is to their everyday life. So you can there, see why this was incredibly yeah, important. There's a lot of private equity talent in Arizona. And, um, <laughs> I, you know, thank goodness it's going to uh, continue being able to attract that kind of talent to the industry. But overall, as we kind of wrap this up, I mean, you know, like we said, not as bold as the Democrats wanted to go, but. There's a lot of things in here, I think, 10 years from now, if we're talking, that are going to help the average person. Uh, Yeah, I I think it moves the needle. Um, There's things that are going to help the average person, and uh, hopefully it will uh, reduce the carbon dioxide emissions, and that will uh, do something to slow global warming as well. Um, There there were definitely other ways that economists like better to... um, make these kind of changes happen for the environment. I'm a big fan of carbon taxes, but carbon taxes have been attempted to to go into effect for uh, 20 years or more, and uh, they they just never gain political traction. So um, instead, we have to resort to things like subsidies that have a little more positive connotation. And uh, that's what we're going to be seeing now for the next 10 years or so. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.